So you're ready to ask the biggest question of your life, the only question before that question. How do you find the perfect ring to ask it with? With the incredible selection of diamonds at Jared and our price match guarantee, you can dare to stop searching and find the perfect diamond at a price you'll love. Visit your local Jared store today and dare to be devoted. We promise to match any price on a like loose certified diamond of the same quality from any other jewelry retailer. See jared.com slash price match for details. Hello, and welcome to Everyday Connection Now with your hosts, Jean Victoria Norlock and Rick O'Shields, bringing your inner life to your everyday life. Welcome, everybody to this edition of Everyday Connection Now. I am, well, who am I? <laughs> I would like I to introduce not. my new co-host tonight, Richard O'Shields. Hi, everybody. How are you, Richard? I'm doing good. It's still taking some work on my part. Uh, I've decided that I'm going to use my full name, embrace my full who I am, and that part of that is my full name. And uh, I posted about it on Facebook and, and had many congratulatory things. You guys are awesome, our listeners and fans and family, our fams as we call them instead of fans. But um, I did get a couple of comments from folks that have known me for, you know, 40 years. And, and, and they said, I'm not sure I can do that. And I said, well, we'll give you some special leeway because it's taken work on my part. Uh, just like that, I go, it was about to say, I am yet again, or I am still, and not, I am, I am. Well, let's go with that for the time being. And to my north, Jean Victoria Norlock, how are you, Jean? <clears throat> I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. <laughs> and actually, I saw in some oh, emotional giggle, giggle, giggle. that you may actually do a radio show one day with a different name, so we'll see how all that plays out. It's going to be fun. Absolutely. So we're not going to talk about us all night, I promise, folks. We're no. Nope. We have any? We're going to cut the banter out this evening because we've got a fantastic return guest and going? a very interesting okay. topic. All right. I was just thought we were going to mention the magazine thing, but magazine thing oh yeah oh my yeah. of course we have to well gonna buy five copies for, it is it's right on topic i, I do it's, it is right on buy topic. five copies for my mother um yeah wow or the song our boy dead. made the top our boy made the cover of rolling stones it's so awesome the times they are a changing yes that's right pope francis is on the cover of the latest Rolling Stones edition. Absolutely awesome. It's, Can't tell you how happy I am. <laughs> it's a planetary first. I've never, ever had a Pope on the cover of Rolling Stone. Even when they were Well, no Pope has ever deserved to be on the cover of Rolling Stone. <laughs> <laughs> no Pope in the history of mankind has ever agreed with the Beatles. So, there you go. <laughs> It, I, I think it's just Until absolutely now. awesome and, and just one more indication that uh, the ripples and waves are 
of, of change are getting bigger and steadier. Yes? Yes, absolutely. Something to celebrate. Absolutely. And, and you're right, it is sort of on topic, some of the things we're going to talk about tonight. Cause it is. We'll, we'll, it is. And, and, and you were doing a grand job of an introduction when I interrupted you. Shame on me, but I knew that you wanted oh. that. Yeah, no, that's totally all right. It's, it's worth mentioning and worth interrupting me for. I'll, I'll be interrupted for cool Pope Francis stuff any day. Yeah, you know that. The new show, we may, have to, we may have to do that, to, you know. What's Frank up to this week? Or <clears throat> oh, don't call him Frank. Frank. Call him George. Don't call no. him Frank. Call him George, but don't call him Frank. Yes. Um, yeah, I think we'll have to include that in the new morning show, certainly. And That's I'm sure like that it. our guest tonight probably has a few things to say about that particular topic because um, Christianity is near and dear to his heart. So And near and dear to I'm, my I'm heart? I'm sure he's been... And I'm sure he's been watching closely um, the the latest and greatest Pope Francis revelations. Yes, I would think so. Uh, we have with us again a return a return member of the family who's been with us a couple of times. We've had some extraordinary and expansive discussions, so uh, I expect much the same in the way of expansiveness. This evening, we have with us Thomas Fusco. Thomas, welcome back. Well, thanks for having me back, guys. How you doing? Well, uh, pretty good, hanging in there, trying to uh, get it all done and, and uh, you know, try to stay relatively warm and uh, uh, all that. <laughs> Boy, we are having the deep freeze, aren't we? You know, folks in Atlanta had a rough time. Oh, I yeah, understand. well, heck, the, you know, it's the south. When you talk about snow in the south, that's like... Uh, uh, you know, Armageddon. So. Oh yeah, when I lived in Houston, you had three icicles on the in a picture on the news, and the whole city shut down. You forget that's it. right. Because <laughs> right. we, we just don't have the. It's not really worth the money to try to invest in the kind of equipment that they would have, say, in Canada. You know, y'all get the roads plowed and cleaned up pretty quickly up there, don't you, Gene? Most times. We do. We do. Yeah, most of the time. Most of the time. I mean, it can I've, hit I've, you hard I've, enough to paralyze you, but but. But for the it most can. part, and, the, you know, what paralyzed where them would not to hurt you guys. Where I grew up, in the snow belt, there's, there's a lot of people, a lot of my old friends constantly, you know, posting about the roads are closed again, another day off work, yada, yada, yada. Up here, that just doesn't kind of happen um, simply because, you know, the roads don't get closed because the plow guy happens to be the neighbor. You know what I mean? Like... <laughs> Your neighbor comes in and plows your your little side hamlet typey street and your driveway, and um, so it the the big plows can stop all they want, but there will always be a way for us to get out, which I find fascinating because you would think being in a remote area in the mountains, we would be the ones that would be in in serious trouble if we get dumped on, but no, it's just not the case. We're in better shape apparently out here. Yeah. Who knew? You know, I, th- I think it speaks a lot of, of the way that the community up here operates. You know, even with the ice storm, um, just there was so such a significant less amount of suffering here than there was 
in the cities and in, in, in larger communities simply because this is a very tight-knit place. You know, you go to that guy's house for water if you're out. You go huddle around that guy's fire if, you know, go knock on his door for wood. Um, it's just there's, there's never without helping hands here. Yeah, it's you're that, never alone. Out it's here. that word community and uh, yeah. that we need to revive in as many places as possible because you're right. In the big cities, it has kind of ceased to exist, and, and uh, that's a bad idea because it's a very important in times of stress. Absolutely. But so again, I digress. Yeah, I know. We could get off, but it's not, though. It's kind of in alignment with what we want to talk about tonight because you know, we, we set Thomas a bit of a challenge, um, inviting him to come and talk about a topic that you and I discuss frequently on the show um, and, and certainly um, behind the scenes of the show. It's near and dear to both our hearts, and uh, it's kind of been the core of our existence. That's that beautiful world, word Christianity, Christ consciousness, um, our good friend Jesus, all of that. But we, we set him a challenge a little above and Yeshua. beyond what Yeshua. Um, we set him a challenge a little above and beyond what we would usually ask our, our guests to do. And we've asked them to come on and, and discuss as openly and honestly as possible our perceptions and our understanding of the original Ten Commandments. That's right. What, what are we doing with that? Why are there ten? What's that? What is it? What did it mean? What do they mean? What does um, it mean? Why are they? Why are they so hard? To, how did we mess up? Do not kill. You know. I mean, questions like that that we can we can discuss, and um, hopefully bring a little more understanding to people who who have maybe not explored this as in depth as we would like to explore it. And rather than taking them the words just pro bono as they are, this is what it means, let's go into a deeper understanding of them. And we thought that Thomas would, would be the perfect person to do that with. Absolutely. You game, Thomas? Oh, yeah. And I'm sure we'll touch upon uh, other spiritual subjects as well. Um, oh, yeah. Can't see how we wouldn't. And And, you know, I'm sure we'll... I don't think we could get on the topic without getting a couple of those emails, but that's good. We love getting emails and cards and letters. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> the, uh, 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 as you may know, those who have read my uh, book, Behind the Cosmic Veil, um, know that there is a spiritual uh, component to it. Uh, my work uh, from a uh, cosmological or a theoretical, uh, scientifically theoretical model uh, can be discussed uh, in its entirety without even considering the spiritual aspects of it, uh, which is, you know, a complete theory should have that kind of uh, characteristics. Uh, but uh, there is a spiritual dimension to it because the subtitle of my book is, uh, you know, the, a new vision of reality that merges science, the spiritual, and the supernatural. And I'm typically discussing a lot about the supernatural and a lot about science. Uh, and I very rarely uh, get an opportunity to touch on the spiritual aspects of it. 
that uh, this theory also embodies uh, traditional uh, religious uh, principles, uh, especially uh, those that are embodied in Judeo-Christian literature, or the Bible, if we want to, you know, uh, talk name about... A, name a book. Everybody that's familiar with, uh, or most people are. And so... Uh, those principles are illustrated in a number of places uh, in, in the Bible. Uh, it's what I call a cosmology that is hidden in the Bible. Uh, it's not something like the uh, story of uh, the creation or in the book of Genesis. It's something more about how the universe is actually put together. And it... Uh, merges remarkably well with the scientific uh, aspects of, of the theory. Uh, but, you know, Judeo-Christianity, uh, and I should say first probably Judaism, is rather unique uh, because it is the first religion in the world that we know of uh, that not only uh, uh, was uh, monotheistic in terms of uh, believing in only one God, but also had this very strict moral code with it. The violation of that code could even be punished by death. And so this is a very strange occurrence to be happening, you know, five, six thousand years ago when all this uh, uh, originated. It's almost so. Almost I'm as sorry, strange. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say it's almost as as much of a reach as someone trying to put science and spirituality together and reconcile them. Because we had um, what was it? The Code of Hammurabi, and we, there were moral codes, mm -hmm. but they were not part of a religion, really. Mm -hmm. and yeah, the, the ancient the ancient Egyptian Book of the Dead, um, which you know, it fascinated me the first time I actually saw the code, and I was reading through it, and I was like, oh, there's one commandment, there's another commandment, there's another commandment, holy, and there they were, all ten commandments listed in the, and I was like, wow, you know, and you just don't, I, I it, it's not something that we talk about openly, it's not something that people discuss, that, that this moral code um, that was delivered, delivered 5,000 years ago, it, is part of something that, that is so much more vast and incomprehensible. I mean, it it was knowledge that had been given before in a different way. Um, so it's it, that part fascinates me completely. That um, it's, it, the code itself isn't that new. It's it's the concept of the, the like you said, the one God blending it all together to too. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and and that you have. Uh, uh, this this code of ethics, which is so important that, like I said, violating it, uh, certain aspects of it could be punishable by death. And there is a deeper spiritual connotation to these things. It's, um, how would I say it? You know, there's kind of like the uh, common understanding of um, a particular faith uh, like Christianity or Judaism. Um, and then there is a deeper level of it. 
and um, one might call it the mystical aspects of those uh, uh, faiths. And the mysticism is much deeper, and it really gets into the core of what all these principles really, really mean. So, uh, I mean, for example, if you compared it to driving an automobile, or, or for example, uh, another example, better example, would be music. Um, you know, people listen to music and they get a certain satisfaction out of it. They, they follow it in a certain way. Um, I happen to have uh, been a professional musician for a number of years. And so this was very early in my, uh, <laughs> my adult life. And, but consequently, when I listen to music, I'm listening to all kinds of things that the average person would not hear. You know, I'm listening to the squeak that's in between the notes of the guitar where the uh, player is actually sliding his or her fingers across the strings and based on the length of that squeak, I can tell what part of the neck he's playing the music on. And so it's kind of like that same way or you know, uh, uh, someone who drives a car all the time perceives what they're doing differently than an engineer who actually designs uh, and builds automobiles. When that person sits behind a wheel, they're going to perceive and think about something uh, much deeper and, and in greater detail and with different emphases uh, than the average person. Uh, religion is the same way. Faith are the same way. There are certain levels of this that get very, very deep and mystical. And so there are underlying um, principles to, uh, like the Ten Commandments, for example, and other teachings, um, uh, specifically out of the Bible, uh, that most people aren't aware of. They, they just don't think about it. Um, and that's fine. But it's, it's, it's a good idea from time to time to kind of get into that depth and talk about it so that people are aware that, you know, what's the underlying principles? What's the substance behind these things? Absolutely. That's actually, you know, the most fascinating, fascinating part to me of religion is going in depth. Um, the ability to go beyond the surface words. The ability to explore the spirit behind the message, so to speak, and, and to do that utilizing both my mind and my heart at the same time, because you kind of need both to be, you know, working together to be able to to get beyond the veil, so to you know, to use your term, <laughs> to go beyond the veil. You have to marry your your understanding um, of it. In, in, you know, looking at the words, reading the words, the surface value, uh, what your brain tells you makes sense, and then you have to marry that with what your heart and your soul are telling you to be truth. So there has to be a balance. Yeah, and and for those who are, uh, uh, you know, so inclined to delve deeper into these things, uh, it helps to have. Uh, and an understanding of, of what these deeper things are. And, and I'll give you a good example. This is something that comes up 
in conversation from time to time. And this has something directly to do uh, uh, with my work, where I talk about a super geometric structure, an order, a matrix, a blueprint. Uh, Edgar Casey called it the Akasha that exists above the physical universe, but it is a part of the same reality that the physical universe is. Uh, you know, it's just a part of reality that we cannot directly observe and measure. We can see the results of it. Now, if we take a look at the Big Bang, uh, at the beginning of the universe, we're talking about uh, the modern understanding in physics is that the uh, Big Bang began as what they call a quantum singularity, uh, that they call it infinitely dense and infinitely small. This is how it's defined in physics. Well, when we're talking about a singularity, what we're talking about is something that is not physical because the dimensions that are necessary for anything to exist physically, which are length, width, depth, and time. The four dimensions of the spatial temporal grid that Einstein revealed to us, upon which the entire realm of physical reality is embedded. Well, in a singularity, all of the, there are no distinctions, there are no variants, as he called it, that everything is collapsed into a single coordinate. And therefore, we cannot have anything physical. The other characteristic of the physical realm from a temporal point of view is that there are no values in the physical universe that, are, that equal infinity. When theoretical mathematicians are working on their formulas and come up with a sum or, or a result which is an infinity, they know that there's a problem. They know that there's something wrong, either in their calculations or, or in error, or there's something missing uh, from the equation. Because we can't have a value. There's two values, mathematical values, in the physical universe. When we're describing something physical or something dimensional, I'm not talking about abstract mathematics. There are two values that are impossible. They cannot exist in the physical universe. One of them is zero. There is nothing in the physical universe that's zero. There's always something. And the other is infinity. We cannot have a value of infinity. Mass cannot travel at the speed of light because the amount of energy that would be necessary to propel it to that velocity is infinite, which means it would take more matter and energy than what's contained in the entire universe to accelerate a football, for example, to the speed of light. Even a grain of sand. Anything. Yeah, exactly. Anything that's mass. Uh, the only thing that travels at the speed of light is something that is literally or virtually massless, um, except neutrinos, but that's a different subject. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> it's kind of like grammar. There's always something that sticks out. <laughs> Anyway, to, to try to get to the point, everything that emerged from this singularity, uh, which became the physical universe, was not only its substance, the actual geometry of space and time itself 
but also the information, the order from which energy and matter began to self-assemble at the beginning of the universe. Um, most people are not aware that the pre, how would I say it, the primitive soup of the, uh, of the first microseconds of the universe didn't try to begin to assemble itself as, let's say, an electron and, and, you know, it disassembled and reassembled and fell apart until it finally succeeded in creating an electron. And then all the electrons after that were uh, descendants of that first electron. Electrons began to form everywhere in the primitive cloud at the same time. Yeah, there wasn't, so, a, wasn't a trial and error process. Yes, or, or an evolutionary process. The, the order was inherent into it. It is the great, one of the great mysteries that still stands in science. From whence came universal order? We don't have the, we have just a smidgens of the beginnings of maybe possibly uh, uh, getting enough evidence to even frame an argument. Uh, uh, let alone have any kind of idea where that came from. So that being said, here we have something that is non-physical, that from it arose all the forms of the universe, because that came first. I, I mean the substance. The substance came first, which was the actual spatial grid. If people read into the deeper meanings of what Einstein wrote, he actually said that all assemblies of mass in order in the universe were densifications, areas of density of the spatial field, that everything composed of the, the, the continuous spatial field. And the dense areas, like the temples in the field, he called matter point. It's very, very deep. Um, so we have this substance that came first. And then forms and orders began to arise out of that substance. You know, so what do we have? Let's take a look at the book of Genesis um, for a moment. And this is another thing that is when we combine this third element together to the first two that we were talking about, monotheism and a very strict moral code that could be punished by death. We have a true creation, a creation out of nothing, whereas other religions talk about, you know, uh, the earth was born out of the, the, the head of Ra or Romulus and Remus made it together and, you know, uh, it came out of their belly and, and all these kinds of myths. But the Judaic scripture says that this was a true creation. It was something out of nothing. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, not the heaven and the earth, as it says in the, in the early King James translations, which were a little bit corrupt. And I know we'll get mail on that. Yeah. Well, no okay. We love cards and letters. Keep the cards and letters coming, folks. <laughs> but it's the heavens and the earth. And one of the understandings of that, or the actual understanding of what that means, is not explicitly written in the documents that are still in the Bible. Paul makes the sole allusion to it in the scriptures, where he says, 14 years ago, 
in the body or out of the body, I don't know, I knew a man who ascended to the third heaven. So there's multiple layers of heaven. And that's why the term the heavens and the earth are the correct one. But when God first created the heavens and the earth, it was void and formless. And it says in another part of the Old Testament, it said God created the universe out of formless matter. So here we have the emergence of the continuous spatial field. It, it actually parallels this, you know, and, and there was stillness upon the deep. And the Spirit of God was stirring above the waters. And if somebody imagines if a person had a vision thousands of years ago of the continuous spatial field expanding, filled with this primordial soup, you know, and had to communicate it to other people that had no education and, and you know, very limited vocabulary, Speaking about it like waters would be a very logical way of putting it. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. No, no advanced mathematics, no, you know, none of that language to put it in. And then God pronounced, he uttered his wisdom, which when we read in the Old Testament, they understood the order of God, the mind of God, as wisdom, where it says that when God was laying the foundations to the, to the world, wisdom speaks in the first person and says, I was there behind him or, or beside him, the artificer of all things, the shaper of that which the creator brought forth. And so this is the wisdom of God. And the, in the ancient Jewish belief, they believed that their alphabet was actually derived from God and that every letter represented a creational aspect of this pattern, this blueprint. And so if the letters were put together in a particular way, it would create enough of a coherent pattern that it would represent the emergence of an actual physical object in the real world. So God spoke. He said, let there be light, which is kind of like a very, you know, nice way of saying what some of the earlier, you know, an, an earlier archaic translation is a little bit... Uh, uh, more literal, uh, as if we go into the English translations of the 15 to 1600s. Be light made is how it's written. Not let there be light. You know, it was be light made. And light became into, came into existence, which happens to be the first visible thing that would have been seen in the early universe is lumination because the light speed particles of the primitive soup were not visible to the naked eye, if there was a human observer. Uh, luminosity would have been the first thing that was visible. And so here we go, be light made, and according to the Jewish understanding, that word light, the assembly of those letters, were the blueprint of light. And God 
spoke them and shaped the primitive soup into that form, into that structure. So here we have an identical correlation to the Big Bang Theory. Identical. Um, you know, people uh, have asked me, you know, well, you know, can other religions serve the same as, as, as the Bible uh, in your work? Well, sort of, but not quite. Because the Jewish scriptures are the ones that have the closest one-to-one -one correspondence. Uh, with actual cosmological theory as it stands today. Now, now I know I'm kind of doing a little monologue here, but... Uh, that's okay. No, because that's perfectly all right. It's absolutely fascinating, and you're touching on stuff that... I mean, I'm certainly no expert, but we have been doing the show for two and a half years, and I have been writing about this stuff for three and exploring this stuff for about five, so you're touching on stuff that I haven't... I haven't gone there. I just haven't gone there. And and so please continue because this is a, a an education, an eye-opening well, education. And, and confirmation, I think, really, more than anything for me. I'm just sitting here going, yeah, I, it makes sense. I've touched on points of it, uh, but it's rare to have someone that you can uh, reasonably discuss it with. Uh, because they want to get into all sorts of dogmatic reasons, or uh, which to me is beyond the scope of you know. Listen, this is, I to me, if I found my you know if 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 you found yourself a time machine and you wound up back there and you wanted to dis to try to describe your cosmological model to people, it would have to be a story. Because you don't, you could not use the language that we use to describe it today, of you know, uh, a continuous temporospatial field. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, they that didn't even have the no words only, for that. <clears throat> yeah, they not only didn't have the concepts, they didn't have the vocabulary. We're talking about some of these primitive languages. Maybe only had several thousand words in them. That was it. You know, uh, not like what we have today. Gosh, I don't even know what the count is, guys. It's got to be hundreds of thousands of words. Well, it's got to uh, be. We, we, we make them up when needed. And, and um, but, well, and it's like uh, we've discussed with David Cole and many different guests that in, in you know, uh, ancient Hebrew, there was no separate word for spiritual and physical. There was just reality there was just life it, it an understanding it, that all things were spiritual that it was and all together that included physical it, it was all the same yes it was a single reality that extended from the bottom which was the earthly realm all the way up to the tenth heaven which is the throne of god and it graduates and this is what my theory talks about that reality graduates from a physical up to a non-physical and what I talk about is that the way that like time dilation where a clock runs at different speeds at different velocities is actually due to the process of the dimensions of space and time beginning to fold in on themselves more and more the closer we reach luminosity, light speed, and that at light speed they suddenly become a constant 
they're still there, but they're no longer variants, like uh, like fully unfolded dimensional space-time is. This is what is meant in the formula E equals mc squared. The C stands for the speed of light, and the C is used because it's a constant. It is the only velocity that is absolute in the universe, measured from all perspectives and all areas of observation. The speed of light maintains the same constant velocity, and there's nothing else like that in the physical realm. Um, so what I see is a continuation past that into that super geometric realm or somebody in the religious and would say the spirit world or, you know, if we're going to talk about the actual nature of what Jesus was saying when he talked about the kingdom of heaven, the domain of God, because the word kingdom is archaic. We don't visualize kingdoms in the same way as we used to, because for the most part, they don't exist anymore. Um, but a good translation would be the domain of God, which was the invisible, which was the, the spiritual. But when we see in Genesis what is being said, and what the underlying Hebrew uh, uh, mysticism sees it as being, it is definitely a realm that's connected to the physical, but is outside of the physical. And yet the physical emerges from it, exactly like the quantum singularity of the Big Bang. It's, it's Just like precisely. And, and I'm in, in our brief chat before the show, uh, I mentioned M-theory, which uh, some physicists or physics geeks might recognize as one of the one of the theories that that physicists are playing with to try to find this uh, theory of everything mm-hmm. um, and here we have in the ancient you know thousands of years five thousand years ago four thousand years ago people talking about the earth and ten dimensions of heaven or ten levels of heaven, the ten yeah. heavens, and that that would then leave, that would be eleven, ten heavens and earth, and that M-theory requires eleven dimensions. Yeah, there's, there's an interesting kind of a numerical uh, uh, correlation. I would, I would kind of say that we're probably talking about a couple of, uh, two different things. I would be hesitant to make that correlation on the substance of those two subjects based on a numerical uh, uh, you know uh, uh, coordinate or, or well, a well, but coincidence to, so to speak to me if you had someone trying from that time and place trying to write down a vision of something that they hadn't the language for uh, I, I just find it very interesting that the numbers coincide like that because the string theories run off to 26 dimensions, and but oh, yeah. 10 for super string, and uh, and but 11 or 12 seems to come up just over and over again. Well, the interesting thing, uh, uh, and I don't want to dwell on this too long because we have, you know, uh, uh, a much more 
important subject that we're discussing. But one of the strangenesses about string theory, or why it is so strange, is because they are trying to come up with a theory of everything from a strictly materialistic paradigm that traditional and, and, and uh, dominant today uh, philosophy and paradigms uh, and paradigm in physics that says reality is what is physical. And what is physical is reality. And there's nothing that lies outside of that. And so when, you're, when we have observations that have no local physical cause, then we have to try to invent these kinds of things to explain everything that we observe in the physical universe with strictly physical means. So mathematically, they have to come up with all these extra dimensions, but none of them can explain how those dimensions are folded in somehow within our four-dimensional space-time. Because if they were above the four-dimensional space-time, then we would be talking about an aspect of reality that is immaterial. And that's taboo. You know, that's pretty much like Chicken Little crying that the sky is falling. Or uh, having a mathematical equation that reduces to zero or infinity. Uh-huh. It's just, it can't be. Everything has to be physical. Uh, another interesting thing about string theories when you look inside of it is that uh, they are, all the variations of it are dependent on the existence of a graviton, which we have absolutely no evidence, and it's one of the dirty little trade secrets in science that they're pretty much aware that gravity has no physical constituent. We have no clue as to what the substance of gravity really is, if, there ha- if it has any substance at all. When I say substance, I mean something material. Materially measurable. Yeah, if it's a force, it must be conveyed by a wave that collapses as a particle. The graviton. Exactly. And there's no evidence that it exists. There isn't even a place for it in the standard model of the universe. It's not just something that we haven't added in. The standard model of the universe works without the existence or a place for the graviton. It's just, you know, but that's another... Uh, it's, and if folks want to hear some more about that, we did talk a little bit more about that in our last meeting. Because mm-hmm. that was more the subject matter. But, but you know, again, I digress a lot about the membranes and and the missing strong and weak interdimensional force. But <laughs> There you go. Anyway, let's take this a step further. Let's take this into Christianity. And the mysticism, the mystical understanding, uh, just like we were talking earlier about the mystical understanding of Judaism, that if somebody read the uh, uh, Kabbalah, you know, they would have more of a clue on this, although the Jewish tradition says that if somebody who read the Kabbalah and actually understood it and was under 40 years old would go uh, totally insane that you couldn't even read the book unless you were of a certain age. Um, In the New Testament, with Jesus Christ, we have a personification of the wisdom of God. John said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, 
And the word was God. Now, we use the term word in English translation, but the underlying Greek is the word logos. And it is a term that was a philosophical term that was derived. Its age is about 500 years before Christ, uh, where this Greek term for, uh, was first uh, derived. And it means order, structure, knowledge, thought, pattern, blueprint, all these kinds of ideas that we really don't have an exact English equivalent to. So this is the Christian understanding of the ancient Jewish understanding of the, the wisdom of God. It's talking about basically the mind of God, the entire matrix that is his very intelligence, his very structure. And this is embodied by the term word. All things were made through it which means that it is a blueprint for the entire universe. And Paul maintains, he says something else into it. He says that all things were made through him, and in him all things hold together. Which means in the mystical Christian understanding that this creational process is continuous. It, this is where it's a little different from the traditional physics view that when the singularity emerged, the singularity dissolved into physical reality. It doesn't exist anymore. So when they look at the expanding universe and they have no physical explanation for it, they have to make up a perpetual motion machine driven by dark energy. Whereas if the process was still occurring... That would explain why the spatial bubble is continuing to expand. But it would have to accept the element that the singularity is still part of the physical universe or part of the reality, but it is continuously feeding and unfolding and emerging physical reality. But this is what the Judeo-Christian scripture says. Um, one of the early apocryphal writings, the Gospel of Thomas, which was an early sayings gospel, one of the kind of gospels from which our more familiar gospels were assembled from. We had sayings gospels, we had narratives, we had acts gospels, or, or uh, 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 you know, records of acts. These are the same miracles Jesus created. This is what he did. That was one kind of gospel. Another kind of gospel was these were the teachings that Jesus taught. <clears throat> and another kind was narrative. Uh, this is where Jesus went, he did this, you know, he went there and did that. And they were all assembled together to create the gospels that we have today. Well, one of the sayings gospels is the Gospel of Thomas. And one of the sayings he says is uh, where Jesus said, he said, look under a rock and you will find me. Crack open a piece of wood and look into the grain, and you will see me there. And this was the mystical understanding of who Jesus was, and that, or basically who the Christ is. So we have this duality 
where we have the Christ, the Word of God, the Logos of God, that was materialized as a human being called Jesus. And this is where he is both human and divine. And this is the mystical understanding behind this, so that all things were made through him, in him all things hold together. And this is how it developed from the early the early Judaic uh, mysticism into the Christian mysticism. Or Gnosticism, they might have used at one point rather than mysticism. Yeah, but Gnosticism was something a little different. It, well, it's a yeah. I don't. I don't mean to put my words on on your explanation, but uh, the logos in, is is a, a very important subject in there. Absolutely, and and in the early uh, uh, you know uh, Christian era, uh, you know we had this offshoot that developed into Gnosticism, and if we were to abbreviate what the difference between orthodoxy and Gnosticism is. Orthodoxy said salvation through faith, and Gnosticism said salvation through knowledge. And so you had to achieve a certain knowledge to become saved and to be able to see the kingdom of heaven and to achieve salvation to become one again, as it says. You know, the uh, Gnostics believed that there was an evil God who created the heavens and the earth, that there was a good God who was the father of Jesus Christ, but the evil God stole the light and encapsulated it in matter. He imprisoned the light of the Godhead in corruptible physical matter. It is the evil God who created the heavens and the earth. And Jesus Christ came to reveal the truth of his Father, who was the good God, that when we learned those things and learned his teachings and understood how to walk his way, that we would become saved. We would be freed from that physical bondage and have an understanding of what that was and what our true nature was, and this is how we would achieve salvation. Where orthodoxy said, if you believe on the name of Jesus Christ, if, as Paul said, if you believe, if you pronounce with your lips that he is the Son of God and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you are saved, or you shall be saved, which is more accurate. He didn't say that was a state of salvation. He said that you shall be saved. So there's a very big distinction between the two. Oh, yeah. There's a whole series of shows. <laughs> yeah, you didn't know I knew all this about, about this uh, Bible stuff. I guess. <laughs> oh, no. No, oh, no I don't, I, I, I don't get surprised. an opportunity to talk about any of this. Well, like I said, it's, it's, uh, earlier it's rare to find someone that you can have a reasonable discussion and by that, or reasoned discussion, and by that I mean not becoming emotional about it and and falling onto the, well, it's how it is, which 
good. <laughs> but my pappy told me it was this way, therefore it must be this way. Right. Or the priest said it's this way, so you go away. I'm not going to think about it. And uh, then I can't count the amount of times that's happened to me. Yeah. Yeah, never did you ask a question of a priest that you were sent away for. Right? Oh, I've been kicked out of so many churches. It's ridiculous. That's beside the point. It's okay. <laughs> well, you know, as we discussed, Gene, uh, in, in, in some email exchanges uh, before the show, what I wanted to do was, you know, take an approach and say, this is what the interpretation of these things are. These are the underlying meanings, you know. Um, everybody can take from this whatever they want. Uh, so we're not, you know, I'm not here kind of preaching or anything like that. I'm just explaining this is what these concepts mean. This is the underlying deeper understanding and mystical uh, aspects to what, what these uh, uh, principles are. Absolutely, and as, as we always say on the show, you know, never believe what anybody tells you if your heart doesn't doesn't feel that it that's the truth, um, and that includes whatever Rick and I say on the air. I mean, just just because it's our truth or our understanding of truth doesn't mean it has to be somebody else's. But it 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 is refreshing to be able to have this kind of conversation without expectation, and I think that's absolutely you know, well. That, that was the whole hope. For, for this evening was to be able to shed a little different light on the subject. It's just you like the, the standard model is quite workable. Whether one believes it contains everything or not, it we can do a lot of work with it. It works well in that way. So whatever model works for people is what they use at the time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and and while we're well, while we're interrupted a little bit in the flow, there it is important to note that we have reached our halfway point. Uh, So perhaps it might be well. It's a big subject. We could, as you said, we could do a series of shows, and and we uh, could we could very easily still be scratching scratching surfaces, Uh, but. my goodness, I could hardly think what we would play at break time out of the, what we have to choose from. Um, what? What? I we, think that a little hang music is in order. Some hang music, yes. Something to uh, get, just in case we've tw- you know twisted any minds and someone has a headache. Uh, it's easy to do. Well, it's easy to do. We, Plumbing the depths of things that don't get plumbed. Absolutely. Um, so, goodness, what are we going to play? Uh, I'll find us one of David Swarup's pieces, and uh, I'll let you know. You'll know which one when it plays. But I'll we'll tell you. We'll talk about the title and 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 David when we come back. So, uh, this is our our friend and and past guest, David Swarup. And we'll be right back, folks, with much more. Stay with us.
welcome back, everybody. I have to speak that way after David's music, it just seems. Uh, I always hate to interrupt it, the calmness. But that was our friend David Swarup with his song, Hang to the Creek. And uh, what does that mean? I don't know. But there's no hanging, no monkeys hanging. No, no, it's, it's an instrument. And I'll put this out there again. Gene just desperately would like to have one. So if anybody has a hang laying around that they're not using, please, you know, get in touch. Right? It'll come to me when it's ready. It oh, will. Oh, I, 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 I have faith. Or, sorry, it will come to me when I am ready. There you go. The hang's ready already, I think. Yes. It is what Indeed. it is. It's actually interesting because I don't know if I... Did I mention to you about Bashar? Off topic. No, but yeah. Off topic. Off yeah. topic. Skip it. Oh. <laughs> See there? I take instruction well. Thomas. Yes. Fusco is with us again after the break. And uh, uh, fantastic discussion. Uh, one that I'm enjoying greatly. And, uh, and I know that Gene is fascinated. Gene is rarely this quiet. Ever. Really. So, uh, Judeo-Christian cosmology, and then sort of moving towards the morality, then, then there's these ten things. Yes. And uh, I think that the, uh, before we start uh, looking at the Ten Commandments, that we need to once again take a look at the underlying mysticism and what is the real understanding from a biblical perspective of the distinction between good and evil now we understand the easier the surface interpretation about a sense of morality and about what's right or wrong. You know, this is good behavior, this is bad behavior, and so on and so forth. And the, uh, you know, uh, for the most part, most people readily grasp, you know, what these biblical concepts of good and evil are, and, you know, what their social value would be. Um, (coughs) Excuse me. But there is also a cosmological aspect to this. And what this is, and this is what I talk about as far as the hidden cosmology of the scriptures, is that it was understood, and we could, it would take some hours, but we could pick out all the different passages that, uh, you know, that verify what, what, what I'm about to say. And uh, a lot of this is actually written out in my book. Uh, is that the physical universe, the physical world, is corruptible. It is defective. It is subject to decay. It is imperfect. It is temporal and spatial. Whereas the heavenly realms, the kingdom of heaven, the spiritual realms, 
or if you're a Catholic and are used to reciting the creed where, you know, I believe in the Father Almighty, creator of the heavens and the earth and all things visible and invisible. The invisible realms are eternal. Uh, as St. Stephen said, um, uh, I'm sorry, not Stephen, but uh, uh, St. Uh, uh, Ignatius said, nothing is good that can be seen with the eye. Which is a pretty profound statement, but he understood this early mysticism that the heavenly realms are eternal and consequently they're perfect. They're either perfectly good or from the other end when we're talking about hell uh, or the dark side, so to speak, is perfection of evil. And the physical universe sits in the middle of it in this turmoil or as Paul said, in his tribulation where he said that, you know, not only we in ourselves, but the entire creation groans and travails, uh, waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. And what he was talking about was the resurrection, when the physical is destroyed, and the new heaven and the new earth is made, and that mortality takes on immortality. But that only happens with the final defeat of Satan. So what we have is this cosmology where the corruptible physical universe is the domain of Satan. This is his realm. He is the prince of this world or as Paul called them, the prince of the power of the air. When we look at the different references for Satan, we always find him closely associated with the physical world or with the earth. Um, you know, when he was cast down in the Garden of Eden, he was cast down to the earth and made to crawl on his belly. When he... Uh, uh, joined the assembly of God in the beginning of the book of Job. God asks him, where have you been? He says, I've been on the earth, walking around it and traversing its surface. When he was tempting Jesus, he said, behold, the glory of all these cities of the earth and everything in it, all of these things have been given to me. And I do with them as I will. So when we look at all of this and take it collectively, we see this cosmology that I maintain was well understood by the ancients, but has been lost in time. That this understanding disappeared when we had an organized church who was trying to manage a completely ignorant and uneducated laity. Um, so what we have here is this grand conflict between good and evil. 
or what I call in my book, between the positive and the negative absolute. Now, what do these things represent? Well, the positive absolute represents eternity. It represents timelessness. It represents incorruptibility. That there's no change or variance in it. It's always the same. And it's always entirely righteous. Moreover, it is the essence of life. That life springs forth from the positive absolute. As John was talking about the wisdom of God, the the logos of God that became man, uh, he said, in him was life. And that life was the light of men. And people have interpreted that sometimes as saying, well, the light of man, it was enlightening, and, you know, we got knowledge from it. No, no, no. If you take a look at the underlying Greek and think about what John is saying, he's saying something almost cosmological. He's saying it is the light that is inside of human beings. And he said that light shines out into the darkness, and the darkness has no power. So what we're talking about is a realm that is corruptible, that's dominated by the devil. It's dominated by the antithesis of God. And I talk in my book about why this is, that to create a dimensional universe that has differences, and our dimensions are expressions of differences in their simplest understanding, that's what they are, our spatial dimensions of length, width, and depth are really expressions of differences between here and there. That there's a distinction between what's here and there. That's dimensions. In time, the temporal dimension is a measurement of the difference between then and now. And this is the simplest way to express dimensions. But here is Almighty God all-knowing, all-seeing, all-eternal, all-constant within him, (coughs) where it says, excuse me, that within him there's no change or variation. And it also says that his gaze spans the entire ages together. In other words, past, present, and future is before his eyes simultaneously. Now, he's going to create a physical universe that is the exact opposite nature. It is timed. It is spaced. It has a beginning. It has an end. It has changes and variations in it. It is corruptible. Its nature is the exact opposite of God. It's the antithesis of God. Well, where is he going to create such a realm? He can't create it within himself because it wouldn't hold together. It would just vaporize. Remember, because the the Bible says that corruption can have no place within incorruption. They are completely incompatible. And flesh and blood cannot obtain the kingdom of heaven. And it also says in the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, Paul said it more clearly in the New Testament, 
while we are in these physical bodies, we are exiled from God. He used the word tent because he was a tent maker. And it was a traditional term was also used in the Old Testament for our physical dwelling. You know, our bodies, it was kind of like a tent. So God couldn't create it in himself. He would have had to create a realm outside of himself where it may be his footstool, but it cannot co-dwell with him in the tenth level of heaven in the throne of God, the throne room of God. It cannot dwell there. Um, but he has another problem. Where is he going to come up with the differences that are necessary to materialize and assemble a dimensional universe? So he created an antithesis. He created an exact opposite to himself. And that is what we call Satan, or Sataniel, which literally means the adversary in the ancient tongue. Now I hear the funnies screaming. I hear them yelling right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, God didn't create... You know, evil, oh, you're crazy, and, and that's awful, and it says it right in Genesis. Okay, but, but, but let's, let's, let's put that argument to rest right here, right now. The simple fact of the matter is those same people who are saying that God could not have created the devil also say that God is the sole creative force of the universe. Therefore, the devil simply cannot exist. Satan cannot exist. Evil cannot exist unless it was created by God. End of story. The argument is mute. I could list you about eight or ten references from the scriptures that talks about evil coming from God. Well, if it's the soul, as she said, if it's the soul creative force, where else, where, what else, what? Where else would it come from? It and, didn't just pop up from the ground. Every stick I mean, has two on. ends. It's a duality thing. <laughs> Welcome. And some of the, you know, some of the early Protestant uh, preachers got the idea where it says that, you know, God created the heavens and the earth and he saw that it was good. Uh, where they, they interpret it as a morality uh, uh, reference that it was good. In other words, there was no evil in what he created. But if you look at every scholarly reference, if you look at Thomas's or you look at Young's, uh, the underlying Hebrew for that word good is tob. And that word means exemplary, job well done, excellent job, made as best as it could be made. has nothing to do with a moral connotation whatsoever. So that's a perversion of the interpretation of the scriptures uh, that was started in early Protestantism. Um, anyway, uh, and by the way, I'm going to make a plug for a most excellent book. Uh, and like uh, this is by uh, a fellow who, you know, I've talked to before. And, and I, you know, he, he'll have to forgive me. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. But look on Amazon for the book, Deconstructing Lucifer. And read that and have your eyes open. Because he takes this myth to task and he does it in great depth. Uh, this idea of a once glorified angel that was that fell from grace, 
There is no scriptural foundation for that. Uh, anyway, the point I'm trying to make is this, is what we have with antithesis, the death, the evil, is all the things that work against the forces of God, the quality of God. So where God is life, that is death. Where God is eternal, the antithesis is temporal. So if you can look at the ancient mystical understanding of this, uh, if we were to take, for example, a, a plant, let's say a blade of grass, the structure is Christ. The order of it is Christ. The actual information from which it is assembled the life in it comes from the positive absolute. But its physical substance is formed from the antithesis. So we have this order and this life breaking forth into the physical realm and trying to manifest and sustain itself while the forces of the adversary are constantly working through its physical substance to break it down and destroy it. And this is the ancient Judeo-Christian mysticism about the cosmology of how the universe is put together based on good and evil. This is the underlying foundation of it. And when you understand that, there will be certain passages that you read that will finally take on all new meaning because you'll understand the original context that the writers wrote it in having this understanding that has been lost over the centuries. Um, so this is what we have. Today, our closest uh, uh, equivalent in physics is the theory of order and chaos. And so one builds up and the other breaks down. And so the whole world, here's the passages from the scriptures, you know, the whole world is passing away. The whole world is subject to corruption and decay. The whole world groans and travails in that pain. The whole world is in the power of the evil one. Nothing is good that can be seen with the eyes, and so on and so forth. And Jesus' prayer, he says, let your kingdom come. Let your kingdom break forth on earth. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when we get into the final stages where, where Paul says, he says, the corruptible world will be reborn. It will be freed from its bondage to decay. And in Revelation, it's expanded to talk about the new heaven and the new earth. This is something that, that people miss all the time. In fact, I, I'm the only guy that I've ever encountered that has caught this, where we talk about this great war in Revelation and the final battle where Jesus finally defeats Satan and finally throws him in the pool of fire forever and ever with the false prophet and the beast. And then the very next thing is very 
eye-opening, where John, the very next thing that John writes is that, Then I saw a great white throne, and he who sat upon it. From his face the heavens and the earth fled away, because there was no longer any place found for them. Once evil was destroyed, the physical universe vanished, it disappeared, it vaporized. And of course it was resurrected into the new heaven and the new earth. This is the hidden cosmology of the scriptures. Now, when we understand this, we understand that what the Ten Commandments were, were that we, as human beings, made in the image of God, which means that we have the choice between good and evil. The rest of creation does not. They are all bound, everything is bound, animal, plant, mineral, into the nature that God gave them and created them into. But he gave human beings the power of choice and free will. So that if somebody chose to murder their neighbor, they would be permitted to do that. Or if you chose to throw yourself off a bridge, God is not going to stop you. He might he's going to try to convince you, don't do this you know, through his writings and through other teachings and maybe directly. But he's not going to stop you. We have free will. So we have power. We are powerful beings. We not only have the choice of free will, but we have the ability to shape the very fabric of creation around us. Everyone is sitting at home, <clears throat> is surrounded and listening, is surrounded by all creations of the human mind and the human hand. That that HP computer you got sitting on your desk, you know, the world, the universe can run through the end of time and that would never self-assemble itself. That we have the ability to transcend our surroundings. And so we are very powerful beings. So consequently, we can actually change the fabric of reality around us unto life or unto death. And so the Ten Commandments were as such that when you follow these things, you are not only focusing upon that which gives life, but you are also working against my adversary in this world. When you break these laws, you are working against me and you are working for my adversary. You become my enemy because you are working towards chaos, disorder, decay, death, murder, destruction. When you break these rules. Entropy. Well, yeah, that is, entropy is built into the physical universe. But you're on its. You're you're going towards the disorder, rather than the order. Yes, you know that just the very process of physical in, uh, uh, you know, uh, the very procedure of physical existence and physical processes has a tendency to destroy itself. 
it constantly consumes itself so that in the next cycle there's less of it available for use because some of it has been consumed by its own metabolism. It's self-consuming. And so Jesus said, you will consume one another. This is the kind of, this is the underlying mysticism behind the morality of the Bible. It's not just a bunch of laws that say, you shall do this and you shall not do that because I don't like this and that. Oh, no, no, no. It's, it's basically a game of life and death, literally. The, and the, because this is how you choose the kingdom of heaven, or not? Uh, essentially, yes. You know, it is what you're working towards. Remember it, what John said, the light of men that shined out in the darkness, and the darkness could not have any grasp over it. This is one of the reasons, according to this mystical understanding of why we're here, one of the purposes of why we're here, we are the lights into this world. We actually, without humanity, really the world is static in a sense that it only behaves the way that it is nature is determined. And that nature is headed towards total destruction. Even, you know, even physics today have scenarios where the universe will essentially come to the end, where entropy will reach such a level that everything that is considered animated or alive will literally be self-consumed, so that they call it the, the big whimper, you know, where everything just kind of wimps out and kind of fizzles off into nothing. Um, so this is the... This is... this mystical understanding is what sets the stage for talking about the Ten Commandments. I have to take a break now. It's your turn to talk for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> have That's to rest a, the voice and drink drink some tea. And, uh, um, you know, uh, the, uh, uh, the ushers are about to walk around with the baskets, so please be generous and... Uh, that's right, big red donut donate button on our website. No, just kidding. Well, I'm kidding a little. Um, no, you're not. Okay, not at all. Uh, <laughs> Please press it. It's we, you know, have new Phoenix Studios, and you know, we, it's not completely soundproofed. Apparently, we found a moment ago, but um, it it is because that, as you said, that context really does change the character and substance of almost every word because it's it is not good and evil in the way that we might think of it it's not the good guys and the bad guys it's the, it's the the underlying nature uh, of the way that it came together the way that it's put together the sitting between the the good and the evil the light and the dark the matter and the antimatter the and and nay shall the two meet lest they annihilate each other uh consume each other uh, it it's um thank you for that um uh, and 
I know that, uh, well, people should just expect that when Thomas comes to visit that Gene and I say less than we ever do on any other episode. Um, because it is very dense information. There's tremendous amount of information that is is lost in the surface story. But then again, most anything you read, there's tremendous information in there that's not just the story. Alice in Wonderland's not just a funny fairy tale. There's a lot of logic, and he was a mathematician, of course. Um, and it it does it it you cannot understand them the way that I, come this was written for people two thousand years ago. You have to kind of understand how they were thinking, and it's not the reality that we think about exactly, or not the way we think about it. It has certainly been lost within the politics of organized religion. Uh, and That's an understatement. Yes, and if you stop and think about it, it's unavoidable. Um, uh, you know, that any time you try to institutionalize something, uh, you are going to set about a system that is authoritative and it's it's worth it's um, it's quality uh, is going to be determined by the you know the wisdom and the ethics of the people governing it um, and so or the absence thereof. Well, that. yeah, that could be too. <laughs> uh, you know, so uh, with an organized religion, you have to have authorities, and you have to have, you know, uh, um, as as Paul said, the principalities and powers. And it becomes rigid. Yeah. And fixed, and yeah. as opposed to the living word. If you think about what Jesus scolded the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious authorities of his time for, it was always about religion. It wasn't about spirituality. He was criticizing them for being religious. Yes, um, indeed he was. Continually, yeah. constantly, and relentlessly. Without ceasing. Yes. <laughs> and yet, the very act of organizing of religion you know makes it this way it institutionalizes it and so you know the Catholic Church one of the authoritative steps that they took to manage the laity who was ignorant and illiterate and would follow any whim you know because there were a lot of different people wandering around in those first couple hundred years promoting all kinds of things as Christianity. Uh, so they had to determine what is orthodoxy and what is not. And they had to determine this is right and this is wrong. They had to set it up in a set of rules and rituals. And in order to maintain some kind of political control over the laity, because 
when you read the history, this was not done with ill intentions. It was not done with a bad intention. It was oh, no. done in almost the best in of intentions situation, and mm. that they had to try to make the best of it. So what they did is that they made the church the doorway. They made the church the gate. Just as in the old time, where you could not, in the Judaic time, where you could not get sin forgiven unless you brought the sacrifice to the Levitican priesthood. The priesthood were the gatekeepers because they were the ones that had access to the Holy of Holies. Well, or tonight's discussion. We, we need to have this understanding of the underlying mysticism. And as you said, the population was illiterate. There were no printing presses. There was no Google. Uh, as unfathomable as that might be to today's youth. <laughs> oh, no, no smartphone. <laughs> how did anybody know anything? Well, that's the thing. They didn't. And so how do you try to boil only... that down and assist them in choosing the good over the evil? Mm-hmm. And here you they have... They could only know what they were told. That's it. And they were... They had to be told in a way that was authoritative and was in a way that if you disobey, you get hellfire and damnation. And we know because we are the rulers and we claim our inheritance from the apostles. And so you better listen to us and better not risk going wayward and losing your soul to eternal hellfire. And if we tried to explain it to you, you would not understand. Exactly. So you're not allowed to read these sacred writings. You know, we don't read them aloud anymore in your language like it was done in ancient times. But the other problem that they had was this, is that that spark, that seed, whatever it was, that was inherited by the apostles when the apostles walked the earth, they carried that with them. And so if we're to believe the reports, you know, they created miracles. They worked acts of power. And it was those acts of power that people would, you know, bow to. Like when the snake came out of the fire and bit Paul, and he didn't die, the natives bowed down and worshipped him as a god. And this is what they had. They were the authorities, and they carried the power of the church. But when they died off, and successive generations began to have less and less signs of the Spirit, they had a real problem on their hands. And that's where the Age of Relics began, where a church had its authority because it had a piece of cloth that had been touched to the bones of Peter. Or it had a splinter of the cross that Christ hung on. And that's where the Age of Relics became, and the relics became the touch point to the power that was in the apostles but had long since disappeared. And this was another aspect that the church was dealing with. And the the splinter ring, the that that there were only so many. You could only have so many pieces of that. 
yeah, until it was well, divided to nothingness, yeah. just like so many pieces of the knowledge until it was lost. Well, there were there were a lot of grails. There were an awful lot of wood from the cross, probably enough to build a skyscraper with. All in these churches all over, you know, Europe and Asia. Um, when we read Revelation, uh, John is writing to the churches of Asia. It's clear from his from the context of what he was writing, that that church had been ostracized, that that section had been cut off from the Roman world, from the Greek world, and it had been cut off from the uh, Judaic roots of it as well. So it's almost, you know, it's these churches that are in exile. Um, So we already see it around 100 A.D., this great splintering. Um... And, of course, you know, the Jews kicked the Christians out a couple decades before, finally decided collectively that these guys are all heretics. Whereas before that time, it was considered a a division of Judaism. It was actually like, you know, you would either be a Pharisee or a Sadducee, or you could be a Christian, but you were still part of the Jewish faith. Um, And so when you understand history... You understand what happened, um, and you understand why the things are the way they are now in the churches, and, um, you know, can kind of judge it accordingly. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know whether that was what we were supposed to talk about tonight. We still haven't gotten to the Ten Commandments, but... uh, Well, an excellent explanation of why they exist and, and... Right. A perfect lead-in to do a part two show. We'll just have yeah. to get you back to have do you part back two again. real soon. That's, that's all there is to it. There you go. Part two. Ser- as no I problem. said several times during the evening, a series of shows, uh, and we'll try to keep it to two. Um, but it's a, it's a huge subject, and it is, I think, uh, greatly illuminated by the information that you've brought forth uh, tonight because it gives people a a groundwork, a context in yes. which to look with fresh eyes. And uh, looking with fresh eyes is is nearer and dearer perhaps than almost anything else uh, because I, you know, we talked at the beginning, you know, deeply steeped in, in Christianity. Well, I... I still consider myself to be a a follower after the Christ. Um, I know that that would perhaps be sacrilegious to some folks because of all the subjects that we cover. But to me, they're all they're all the same subject. There isn't but one really subject, and that's what's going on. Um, what's going on? Oh no, no singing. Um, <laughs> Well, I have to see. There it was. I have to get that giggle at least once a night. Yeah. To to. Well, it, it's it's such a heavy, serious subject. But the truth of the matter is, like you just said, um, I too would would consider myself a follower of the Christ. And you know, the contradiction being that most people who listen to the show would think that that's absolutely insane. And and um, so out of out of alignment with the topics that we discussed, but 
Christ taught love and life. And my understanding of love and life is that all truths on this amazing duality-based planet are true truths. And so people need to be allowed to explore them. And if our universe, such as it is, our world has been created with the purpose of having duality, then we need to celebrate that duality. We need to explore that duality. And to do so honors both God and Christ to bring people on to speak about these topics without judgment and without making assumptions, without pointing fingers. That, to me, is is following Christ's teachings. Yeah, it's, uh, it certainly is different than the institution, uh, the institutional religion. And there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of passages in the scriptures that refer to this as underlying. You know, for example, um, you know, uh, we have a, if we're going to believe the historical accounts in the Gospels of the crucifixion, where Jesus was scourged and then he was taken outside to be crucified. Well, there's a mystical understanding beneath that about how he was literally taken outside the gate so that in the gate he was scourged and outside of the gate was when he died and brought about the salvation of the world, so to speak. It was outside of the institution. And this is the underlying mystical understanding to it that most people are not aware of. Even many practicing Christians, they're simply not taught this kind of a thing, uh, in part because the people who are on the pulpits teaching them are just simply not equal to the task. They just don't go there. Um, uh, you know, and another thing popular in Christi- Christianity today is what I call the warm, fuzzy teddy bear in the sky. Uh, you know, when you read even what Jesus is quoted as saying, he's not talking about any teddy bear in the sky. Uh, you know, uh, so, uh, like, for example, uh, these are things that people miss. They read right by, I think it was the man who was born, um, oh, I forget, he was crippled, I think he was born blind. The apostles, the disciples asked him, what sin did his did his he or his parents commit that he would be born this way, would go through this this torment of not being able to make a living, of being ostracized and criticized and probably even spat upon. I mean, there was no political correctness back there. There was no social welfare. There was, you know, a blind person was a beggar. And Jesus says, not for any sin that anyone committed, but so the glory of God might be made manifest in him. In other words, what he's saying is that his father created this man this way and made him live a life of misery so that he could be a five-minute talking point for Jesus. Now, what? that is no form fuzzy teddy bear in the sky. That's something where 
the light shining forth in the darkness is more important. It's not the warm fuzzies. So, and there's all kinds of little, you know. Well, and so that the the suffering, the minor sufferings or challenges that people might go through, that then they learn from. That there you go. It's this one had a whole life was for that reason. Yeah, learning, yeah. teaching. And in the context of that mysticism, that's justified because it augments life. It facilitated the life of many. Uh, you know, uh, um, justified and perhaps even noble to go through that. Yes, for and, that reason. And the justification is another principle that is very little understood, and it does relate to the Ten Commandments and that code of moral and ethics. From the Christian perspective, no one could live up to those. So that it was actually a sentence of condemnation, the Ten Commandments, and that humanity needed to be saved from that. And so through faith, humanity becomes justified. And what that means is that the dwelling of that faith in an individual is the justification for the, lack of a better word, the sorry state of a human being. That in a human being's natural state, he or she can never please God and never live up to the perfection of God. But with the faith, it is justification. And so the person becomes justified through faith, but not through acts. Because by anything a person does, they could never equal the holiness of God. And so this is another aspect that dates, you know, right back to the, 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 the Ten Commandments. For example... One of the commandments says, thou shalt not kill. Now, the Hebrew, underlying Hebrew word for it, uh, depending on, on, on what spelling you use, is ratzak or retzak, depending on what you look, uh, you know, what, what spelling you're going by. It is almost a literal translation to the word kill. And the context of it means essentially thou shalt not murder unlawfully because under the law it was prescribed that you could kill uh, but the word is actually generic like kill when we in common language talk about kill we are normally talking about killing another human being but the word also means kill in general, to put anything to death that's living. And the Hebrew word is an exact translation to that. It has a broader meaning. It also can mean destruction. It also can be, uh, uh, you know, something where you're putting an end to something violently. Now, from a mystical point of view, if we're taking a Christian mystic's point of view, what the mystic would say is that we did 
the God did not use a specific word for murder, because there is a closer word for murder in the ancient Hebrew language. He said kill. And what that means is that no human being can live up to the glory and the holiness of the Ten Commandments, because no human being can live without killing. So even a vegetarian, I'm sorry, you killed, you just killed that head of lettuce that you ate. You killed it. Absolutely, That's I right. agree. I'm so glad you brought that up. Thank Thousands you. Thousands of vegetables are killed every day. Please yeah, stop the you slaughter. Have destroyed the life that came from the very Godhead through Jesus Christ into inanimate matter. You just destroyed it. How are you going to atone for the sin that you just committed? You can't. Your very life is death. Everything that you do is filled with death. You consume life. You destroy it by your very existence. How are you going to glorify yourself? You can't. All you can do is be justified. And so a certain state of dwelling within a human being justifies that killing. And that's what a mystical Christian would interpret this as. Now that got deep. I know I got pretty deep. And that's just and that's just one. So join us again. Part two. That's just a preview of what's coming up in part two, where we go in depth into all ten of the commandments. Because that'll be cool. <laughs> it's going to be very very cool. In the uh, in the meantime, I would convert uh, encourage everybody to get by uh, Thomas's website. Uh, and buy his book, for goodness sake. Get yes, the book. And, and please buy it at the website. I want the book. Don't, don't <laughs> be off to Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. Go to his website, which is www.cosmicveil.com. And that's uh, V-E-I-L, like a, like a veil, not the skiing place. Um, cosmicveil.com. And uh, uh, you can go right there. There's a link to order the book. Uh, and that would be our preferred method that you do it. And uh, but of course, you'll get more more of this in part two. We'll let you know when it's coming. <laughs> but know that it is coming. We might even talk about you know, I don't know what. That thou shalt not kill thing, and the eternal is what's perfect and. So if you can take a human and then convert them, make them eternal, then you've perfected. And I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I digress again. His, well, his I think, mind's kind of blown. I think. <laughs> see, the original meaning of what I was just talking about was that it was supposed to be an understanding and acknowledgement of our own corruptible nature and why we needed to believe in God. And according to Christianity, of course, believe in, in, in Christ. You know, today, what it grew into was a method of fear and threat that the church said, you know, if you don't do this and you don't do that, you're going to be condemned and, and all of that. It, it got used as a method, as like a whip, as a method of control. But that's not what it was originally meant to be. 
Surely so not. Everybody can take take a deep breath and relax. Yes. Breathe. Don't forget to breathe. It's very important. Breathe. And, um, uh, yeah. And take a deep breath and relax. I have never spoken on this subject in this detail on on any radio interview before. This is a first for me. And uh, I'm sure some will be throwing my book in the funeral pyre after they hear this. But uh, I personally uh, to think own. that this is going to encourage a lot of people to pick up your book. That's just my opinion. Um, certainly, I can't understand why I don't have a copy sitting on my shelf, um, along with all of the other authors that have been guests on the show. So I'm going to have to remedy that. But... Um, we we uh, I hope that it, it's making you happy to be able to discuss this openly and so in depth and and you know we really would love to get you back on for part two because this has been an absolutely astounding insightful discussion and I don't even know if I can call it a discussion illuminating I didn't say much but illuminating it is was, a good word it yes. was a um, verb right. <laughs> But it was was fantastic, Uh, though. um, Thank you. Thank you very much. It was, indeed. So do get by Thomas' website, pick up the book. um, Get the book. Drop by and visit us, everydayconnection.me. Find Jane's book there. It's called Truth. Might even find some... Vague similarities in there somewhere. I don't know. I won't get into that. Um, and uh, and we do appreciate you hanging out with us for this episode, which has been just a tea tad long, but not 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 much. We have successfully managed to cut poor Thomas off, but we will have him back for this continuation. Yes, we have to, we have to do a continuation on this. We can't so, we can't not. So we hope that you will join us for that and for all of the shows that we have to come. But until then, to our mother, to each other, and especially to yourselves, stay connected. Have a great now, everybody. Join Jane and Rick again next time. Until then... Visit their website at everydayconnection.me and subscribe for news and updates. Stop by their Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash everydayconnection and join the conversation. You can also subscribe on iTunes by searching for Everyday Connection Radio. Subscriptions are free, just like your Everyday Connection. to ask the biggest question of your life the only question before that question how do you find the perfect ring to ask it with with the incredible selection of diamonds at jared and our price match guarantee 
you can dare to stop searching and find the perfect diamond at a price you'll love. Visit your local Jared store today and dare to be devoted. We promise to match any price on a like loose certified diamond of the same quality from any other jewelry retailer. See jared.com slash price match for details.